When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win twenty-five grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants stores. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown. I am extremely excited to have Coach Charmin White with us, who is the head coach at Miller Grove, the Miller Grove Wolverines uh, that are located in the metro Atlanta area of Georgia, but he's also the assistant coach of USA Basketball for under 16 and 17 year olds. So there's a lot of resources here to talk to you about, Coach, and thanks for coming on the show first. Uh, thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Well, let's just jump in with, um, you know, where did you start? How did you get your, your first, you know, coaching basketball knowledge? Uh, actually, I started off in the middle school. I uh, coached middle school for six years. I uh, learned a lot of foundational stuff. And it was at a time when I was very eager to learn and very eager to try to get better and trying to perfect that craft. And so I was able to, you know, had a lot of, you know, uh, stumbling blocks, but it was very successful at the same time. And so I did six years on the middle school level. And at the same time, I was also assistant at the high school in the feeder area of where I was coaching at in the middle school. And so I was getting the high school experience uh, as well. And so finally, uh, after the sixth year, after going into my next year, I was hired as a head coach uh, at Carver High School in Atlanta, Georgia, and took a team that had won three games uh, prior to the year of me getting there. And we came within two games of winning the state championship my first year. And then we went on and uh, had two more good years there. And uh, the final year there, we lost in the state championship game. And that's when all the offers started coming to, to come to different schools. And uh, I chose Miller Grove because it was a brand new school, a brand new program. I could build a program from the ground up, whereas before I kind of took a program and had to, you know, rehab it and, uh, you know, change the culture of it. And so this time I got a chance to build it from the ground up so everybody that walked through the door knew exactly what their expectations were. Let's talk about that transition when you first took over a team that had won, you know, three games the year before and, and, and went as far as you did. Uh, first of all, what, like, what division were you guys in? And I don't know, how does the state of Georgia work with divisions and size of school? Well, you know, it's based on the number, the enrollment number. Uh, you know, we were at that time, that, that school was a 2A school, which meant it was probably well, on the smaller scale. Uh, but the competition was very, very uh, strong. I had some great players in it. Uh, Mike Mercer that went on to play for University of Georgia in South Florida, uh, Corey Gibbs that went on to play for University of Georgia. Just a lot of good players and a lot of good coaches. Uh, so uh, it was a it was a good you know training ground I would say. Uh, but again, um, going to Carver was just uh, an experience that I really really uh, needed. And you know at the time I couldn't understand why I had to be got to get my first coaching job at a school that had won three games prior to. But once I got there and you know you know got my feet wet and got you know entrenched in what I was doing, uh, it made for a good, good thing. 
So what, there must have been something you did. What, did, did. Did you have some extra players that came in, or you know, what, what do you think happened that changed the culture so quickly? No, actually, you know, the kids just, you know, it was just a matter of, you know, the kids that were there were really good players, but they just, you know, nobody just kind of took them hands on, and uh, you know, these guys, uh, they wanted to win, but they just need to have be shown how to win, and you know, just kind of putting in that hard work, that giving them a good work ethic, giving them a good foundation for what hard work means and what it would translate to. And then also at the same time, cultivating them and, and giving them different experiences, you know, going to team camp and taking them out of town, took them to Florida State for a team camp, which is something they would never done before. And just giving them different experiences and opening their eyes to, you know, what this that round ball can do for them and how it can take them all over the world. And they bought in and, you know, they, they really played hard for me. They were very loyal. And uh, it just made for a good combination. And we started off very slow. We lost our first six games. You know, and there was some doubt and all that stuff, but they kept, they believed in me, and um, they believed in what I was telling them. And, you know, by the end of the season, we had got it going, and, and you know, nobody wanted to play us. And we, we upset a couple of number one seeds, and like I said, we came within two games of winning the st uh, state championship. Um, how, how quickly was your coaching style or system, perhaps, solidified from when the time you took over? Did you, like, completely revamp when you got to Miller Grove? Or are there a lot of similar things that you did in the beginning that you do now? There are some similar things, but there are a lot of different things as well. Because I've grown as a coach since then. You know, I was kind of like a uh, newbie, uh, green, as I would say, in a situation where I were at Carver. You know, I had coached middle school, but coaching high school was a little bit different. A lot more competitive, a lot more things on the line. Kids trying to get scholarships to continue to play basketball. So a lot of other intangibles that came into play. But uh, when I got to Miller Grove, you know, I had grew a little bit as a coach. And over the years, I just kind of evolved. I just continued to try to better myself. Uh, I speak at a lot of the Nike clinics. Uh, <clears throat> and so I'm also all attending clinics. I'm also looking at b-ball breakdown and watching you break down the Spurs. Uh, when the year they beat Miami, uh, I mean, I watched that whole breakdown. I got great stuff. And so we even implemented some of those things, you know. And so uh, it's just things like that that help me, you know, try to perfect this craft and get better at it. But, again, uh, you know, I, I try to adapt to my players. I don't really have I – don't, I don't like to say I have a particular system. I just try to adapt to my players. If I got – like I've had big teams. I've had, you know, teams that were guard-oriented. And I think it's just a matter of trying to find, get the thing that works best with that team. We talk a lot about part method and whole method and how you like to teach and how coaches do that and implement their, their styles, their systems. Uh, would, you, do you, would you say that you fit into a certain structure of whether you are a part method coach where you break everything down in the beginning or are you more of a whole method? I'm a part method. I, I, I really like teaching you know, the parts to the whole because I think that's uh, more conducive to our kids and the way they, the, the way they take it in. I think they, they really understand it better when you start breaking it down part by part. And like, you know, for example, if we're teaching a defense and we're building up to a press, we're, you know, teaching a pressing defense, we're building it up. You know, we start off with two-on-one and things of that nature, but we try to build it up and then we put it all together. And it works really, really well for our particular, for our particular program. And <clears throat> our kids tend to learn better, I think, in that particular situation. But I think, you know, you got guys that do it, you know, whole method, and I've seen success, successful guys that way. But for us and for myself, I prefer the part method. 
Sure. I mean, I, I go back to like, you know, Pete Newell is my idol who I, I kind of tried and patterned as much as my stuff after who, you know, was the kind of guy who John Wooden couldn't beat him the last, you know, eight or eight times they played. And he was always the guy that didn't have a lot of talent, but he did the part method and he always built up his offense two on two, three on three. So uh, I, it's always encouraging to hear like success with that method as well, because I agree. I think in this day and age, uh, you know, the kids uh, with their with attention spans, it's uh, not only easier for them to take smaller chunks and build from there, but I also think you can't really hide in a two-on-two or a three-on-three drill, right? Exactly. You, you can't screw up the footwork and get away with it so easy. Exactly. I mean, especially like when you're talking about defensively, you're teaching ball screen defense. You know, you got two guys, on two versus two. I mean, you know, guys are going to be exposed in, in the ball screen, and so that's what you want so you can teach it. But, uh, again, that, that's just the way we do it. I, I love it. So speaking about defense, it sounds like you are a, a pressing coach. So, you know, how important are you? Do you do like 40 minutes of hell or are you kind of, uh, do, you know, pressing uh, different times of the game? Uh, I'm not a 40 minutes of hell guy, but we do like the, the main thing with defense is we like to force tempo. But when we are pressing, we play like a, a more of a man, uh, you know, jump, press. And then sometimes, you know, we go into like a dominant one and we do different things. And then we want to control the tempo and slow it up a little bit. We'll go to a 1-3-1 one, one zone press. So we have various presses that we do to kind of like, you know, just create whatever tempo we're looking to create. And that's going to give us an advantage, we feel like, defensively. You know, that's, that's kind of fun. I mean, you know, that's what coaching is, right? When you can mix up defenses and really keep the other team on their toes, as opposed to I, the problem I've had with, with the coaches that will simply press the entire time. What I've noticed is that the other team tends to get used to it at some point, and then it becomes very ineffective. And yet the kids are stuck running at the rest of the game. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same way. Uh, <clears throat> I, I've had teams that try to press us, and you know, and once we pick it up, or once we made the adjustments, if the, if it was throwing us off a little bit, uh, we've had field days, and then you know, now they don't have anything else to run, and so now you got to guard us, you know, not the way you want to, and we're going to attack that, and we're going to make you know make you pay for that. Well, let's talk about offense a little bit because it doesn't sound like I don't, you're not like a triangle coach. It sounds like, but is there a way to describe like what kind of an offense that you do run? Like I say, we kind of build our offense around our team. We, we, we've had some big teams in the past. Uh, you know, we had a team back in uh, 2010, 2011. We had Tony Parker, who's at UCLA right now, uh, Brandon Morris, uh, who's at Cal State Bakersfield out there in that area as well. But we had some really big teams where we had front lines of 6'9", 6'8", 6'8". So we had like a college front line. So uh, we were doing things that we really wanted to get the ball inside and let those guys eat inside and, and try to get them in position, whether it was high-low, uh, situations, one-four situations where we can really expose and get a two-man game going if we could. But uh, once, we, you know, we, we also kind of shifted away from that because we, we didn't have as many big guys, and we haven't really had that kind of luxury of having big guys like that recently while we've been winning our championships. So we've been went to a more of a ball screen attack, ball screen continuity, and things that kind of spread the floor and give, give our guards space to be able to make plays and get guys involved and be able to just really create plays and, and create the, the best advantage for our team offensively. Uh, talk about teaching the pick and roll a little bit, because obviously, you know, uh, that's not an easy play to run with a high school guard. Um, is, I'm assuming that's also part method where you're really breaking it down and explaining, but how, how do you go about building that part of your offense into your system? Well, you, like you said, you have to take your time. You have to really teach it by part, I think, because, you know, you can talk about the guys that set in the screen. And one thing we tell our guys that set in the screen, we tell them, you know, be quick to set it. But we tell the guys who's, who's using the screen, be slow to accept. And those that, that might sound simple, but it's very, very 
uh, is very important to the way we can attack a ball screen because if the guy who's uh, using the ball screen is rushing to go use it before the guy sets it, of course you're not going to get what you really want out the ball screen. So we, you know, we, that's one of the methods we use with, you know, when we break it down. Uh, we try to teach what what happens off the ball screen if the guy hard hedges. You know, if a guy over hedges, we teach him slips. So it's so many different things you can teach from a perspective of, you know, just using two guys, you know, or four guys, two on two. It's so many things you can teach from it and pick and pop. And you can, you know, just incorporate everything with the ball screen. And so, and there's so many different things you can do. I, I just love the ball screen. That's one of the reasons I really like the San Antonio stuff that you put up a couple of years ago. Well, don't, let's not forget, they, they, the most of their success was off of ball reversal, then the ball screen, right? As opposed to just holding your fist up and going straight into it, which is what we do see a lot of. And we do see the defense is already in a position to guard that to, to begin with, right? Yeah, they, they do a lot of ball movement before the ball screen. You're absolutely right. I remember the play that you called, you know, it's, uh, I think it was uh, Zips, where the guy runs a zipper cut, and he goes through a, a triple screen, and then he gets the ball screen on the other side. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, the loop. That, I, think, I think that's the loop. The loop yeah, where... we call it zips. And, and okay. That, oh, I love called. it. Well, you know, it's funny because as a triangle offense coach, I still see a lot of the, um, the concepts of the triangle in that offense, and uh, it, it gets a lot of um, crit- critiquing uh, now these days with what the Knicks are doing. But you can watch the Spurs run uh, the corner option when they get the ball goes to the corner. They, they cut through and, and ball screen. Uh, you can see pinch post with them a lot. Um, do, you, do you do pinch post at all or no? We do some pinch post, yeah, yeah. We got a kid that can really operate from the area because that's a mean area. If you got a guy that can operate from it, you really can get a lot out of it. We also run a 25-up play that I really, really love too. Uh, that that creates, you know, the guy that can step out, that can hit that that big, that can step out and hit that shot popping up. Or, you know, you got plenty of options. So uh, we, we really like that stuff. Do you see a lot of pick and roll uh, when you're uh, with the other teams in your area? I see a lot of attempts at it. I really <laughs> do. I see a lot of attempts at it. And, and, and I say that, you know, uh, I say that humbly. I don't say that in an arrogant way or anything. But uh, I, I just think it's a very – it's a it's an intricate – skill to teach it's not as easy as it sounds it might sound easy pick and roll is very simple no it's not because there's so many reads that have to be made you know by everyone there and then the spacing that has to be provided for it to be effective and so we see it but we you know we we concentrate on defense a lot and guarding ball screens is one of our specialties and so we'll do different things to try to you know bust up a ball screen whether we you know we can come out and trap it or we might just switch it depending on the personnel or we might you know it's just different things we do. So we see a lot of attempt at it. Have you seen our breakdowns on, on ice defense, the pick and roll? No, I have not. All right, because, you know, what, what they do in the NBA now a lot is they'll force the ball handler away from the screen, and then they'll drop down the screener's man to contain. Um, and it's kind of devastating because you don't need to have a third guy rotating over at all to be in part of the, uh, of the play. And, um, you know, a lot of times on the, on the sideline is when you saw it most often, but we started playing around with a little bit on the top as well, just literally taking a half of the court away. And um, <laughs> not, to, not to, you know, I guess you're on my show so we can talk about it, but, you know, definitely something worth, worth in, checking out because if you have, uh, you know, smart guys who can pick up stuff like that, you can really take away, uh, you know, a lot of options the offense wants to get. I'll be doing it as soon as we get done. <laughs> All right, cool. I'll, I'll give you a link. 
Um, you know, speaking of Tony Parker, I have a funny story where I was watching UCLA practice, uh, you know, when he was injured and when Shabazz, uh, Shabazz Muhammad was there. So that was, I guess, two seasons ago, maybe? Two seasons ago, his freshman year. Yeah, and he was sitting there on the side. And, you know, I can't – it's hard for me to sit there quietly. You know, I got to talk to people when I'm around. So I just started chatting with him. And we were watching some of the drills. We were watching some of the guys and some of the footwork. And I have to tell you, and this is, I didn't know that he played for you until the second you told me. Um, and I, I said this on Twitter the other night. I was as impressed with him and his knowledge of footwork than I had been with anybody at that age, certainly. He really understood the game and it could, it could verbalize it and, and discuss it in a way that I was blown away by a, a kid who was, you know, a freshman with a cast on his foot walking around. And that wasn't moping too much, but he seemed des- definitely upset that he wasn't playing. But he, uh, I was really impressed. And I, I guess I want to give you some, some props because it sounds like that's probably where he learned all of it. Well, he learned a good bit of it, you know, working with us. But Tony, you know, he was good uh, from the beginning. When we got him, you know, he was way advanced uh, than most guys come in as a ninth grader. He started as a ninth grader uh, and just got better. And Tony was a hard worker. He constantly worked on his game. Uh, you would always find him in the gym, even out of season, in season. You know, not just with us. He, you know, he had a personal trainer. We work with a trainer. But he was a he was a constant worker. Uh, and trying to get better and as a student of the game and as a great student of the game he understands the game you know and I like the way he uh, carried himself as a player not only on the court but off the court and so it kind of makes up all of that that makes up the great player and he, and he had a fantastic career won four state championships in a row uh, McDonald's All-American Jordan All-American he did everything that you could actually possibly do in high school and could be more proud of him right now oh I know and then I, I suppose you couldn't be more proud of him because of the game he had uh, the last game, right? Was it like eight for nine or something crazy like that? Wasn't that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, he had finished with like 28 points, 12 rebounds, uh, like three or four blocks, and just really uh, dominated the game. And I'm looking for, I told him I need him to introduce the same thing against Gonzaga because it's going to be a little tougher uh, opponent, <laughs> but I, I think I think he's up to the task. And I think he's uh, it gave him a lot of momentum and a lot of, uh, you know, just being ready. Right, I hope so, because I feel like, you know, I, I don't pay too much attention to college, but it seemed like he's been, kind of been up and down, right? He sort of hasn't been able to get consistent with that kind of effort or, or that kind of production, at least. Yeah, I mean, and you can attribute that a lot to, you know, just trying to get acclimated to coach. He has learned, he had learned two different systems. Started with, you know, Ben Howland, right. and, you know, it was more, you know, uh, slow it down, and now Steve offers more, kind of pushed the tempo a little bit. And so, uh, you know, he's been having some nagging injuries, but all in all, you know, I think it's just a thing where he just had to get it going, and I think he felt the pressure and the need to really just start, you know, playing up to the capability he, he came in at. So talk to me. It sounds like you came into a really good situation with Miller Grove where they wanted you, right? You already had some success, and you came in. Uh, did you have an issue starting the program there with, you know, players buying in, or did you just put the ring on? Or you had a state championship before that, right, or not? No, we had lost in the state championship oh. game the year prior to me getting there at the school I was at, Carver. Um, you know, it was just one of them things, you know, when we opened Miller Grove, uh, we had a lot of young kids. We started with ninth and 10th graders, actually. That's the way the school opened. So we actually played a JV slash varsity schedule our very first year. And so when we played our actual first year, we had uh, gotten Mufon Udofia, who went to our feeder middle school, who ended up going to Georgia Tech. He now plays for the Spurs D-League team. Uh, and so... Though he was he was a hard worker, he was a, a very very stern uh, basketball player, and so he we had him and we had Stephen Hill to come in uh, with him from the feeder school. Plays uh, professionally, he played for the Jets, uh, got drafted from the Jets and played with them, and now he played with the Carolina Panthers. 
but he was a fantastic basketball player. But those kind of guys kind of laid the bricks. They really, really uh, kind of showed the way of how our program, how I, want, how I envisioned our program, which consisted of hard work, commitment, player development, and things of that nature. And they really bought into it, so it was an easy sale to everyone else that came after that because they kind of led the way. Talk about your practices for a second. Uh, do you have long ones? Do you have short ones? Do they vary throughout the game? Are they timed to the minute? How do, how do you run your practices? Yeah, we have a very detailed practice. I plan our practice the day before. I go through and plan out every minute of practice because I think that time is very, very critical. Uh, at the beginning of the season, we do run practices probably a good two hours. As we get toward the middle and the end, we usually go about an hour and a half, you know, hour 15 minutes just because – at that point in January, I tell the kids all the time, I'm not coaching your bodies anymore. I'm coaching your minds because we're getting ready for that final run. And so, uh, you know, our practices, again, we spend a lot of time on defense in the beginning. We get a lot of shots up in between. I try to make shot breaks. I call them shot breaks where we put some shots up, whether free throws or just, you know, shooting the ball from different areas on the floor, mid-range is three points. But we kind of put those in, and then we, you know, work our transition in the middle. Then at the end, we work on our half-court stuff. Because I feel like that's where the game is won and lost at in the half court. You know, you're not going to, you know, transition is not going to be what's going to happen at the end of the game. You've got to be able to score in a half court set. You've got to be able to defend in a half court set. So we you, finish up like that. Do you get like the clock out and say, okay, you're down by three, there's two minutes left, and then let them scrimmage like that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. We do, we do a situational tournament. You know, we try to add that in like once a week where we just do go over situations. We spend the last 30 minutes of going. And I got like a, a breakdown of different situations. And it gives you so many uh, different ways of going at it. And, you know, put the kids in situation. A lot of times we tell, okay, what do you want to do? What do you think we should do? But by doing that also, it gets us where, you know, when that situation happens in a game, the kids are going to be familiar. So, you know, when they come over to the timeout, it's not like everybody's looking, okay, you remember we did this in, in, in practice. We did this in situation. And we go over the last second shot. Or they'll be more apt to run it and be, you know, more apt to execute it and hopefully win the game or hopefully put us in a position to win the game. Absolutely. I mean, that's exciting because, uh, you know, oftentimes, especially when you're watching the tournament, you see a, a lot of, uh, I guess you could call it overcoaching, where uh, they don't let the players learn on their own or, 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 or you know, play on their own. Uh, let me ask you this. Do you, is there a sort of a golden ratio between, I, I suppose, your flow or motion offense versus, you know, calling a play from the bench? Uh, you know what? I, I, I've been fortunate to have some great point guards, uh, you know, and even if they were not, you know, let's say Division One, but I've, I've been fortunate to have great point guards regardless. And what I tell my point guards, I, I, I spend a lot of time with my point guards, you know, away from the court. I try to you know, let them know you guys are me on the floor. And when I tell them when I feel like they've gotten to a point, I'll say, look, you got the keys. You tell me what you see out there and you run what we need to run to beat it because I try to equip them with the ability to be able to do that. And, you know, from time to time, we will call the play from the bench specifically. So we, if we see something as a staff that we know we need to attack at, you know, but I've been fortunate. I got a point guard right now who's a, a high major point guard, recently got off from UConn, and, you know, he's going on official there. And he's, you know, the, the epitome of what I like in a point guard because he can go out there and read what the defense is doing and know what we need to run. He knows all the stuff. He can put guys in places. So I'm very, very, you know, I kind of shade toward my guards because I feel like they kind of set the tempo. They kind of create what it is we want. 
Um, we'll talk about that. If you have a lot of players who are all either uh, D1 level or certainly going to your program intent on getting that scholarship, how uh, do you balance that desire and that goal with getting your team to play like a team? Well, I think, you know, coming into our program, our program has been established whereas, you know, winning is, you know, priority uh, and, you know, creating a good culture of basketball, creating a good culture of character is also there. And so I think our guys kind of see the balance going forth and see what helps is we all our older guys, they always come back and they speak with the younger guys, they mentor the younger guys. And they make them understand because, I mean, I tell people all the time, Tony Parker only averaged 16, 17 points a game. Uh, and it was because, he, you know, we had other guys that could actually score. And, you know, he had other guys averaging 14 and 13 and 12. You know, if, if Tony averaged 40, we might not have won as many championships as we did with him. And they understand that. They buy into the team concept. It's like a brotherhood. And I think, like I say, it's about culture. You know, and that's the culture we're trying to build. And that's the culture we, you know, we want to establish from the beginning. I, I suspect there are a bunch of coaches out there that might be watching this who are pulling their hair out because they're like, oh, if it was only if only we can get that to happen on our program, because I've seen it where they've had three or four D1 prospects and they're all just it's a one on one show. And uh, it's just so difficult because everyone's pressuring them. Right. I mean, they're the parents are pressuring them and their friends and the community and everybody, uh, you know, to, to get whatever they perceive the number needs to be right to get enough um, uh, focus, but I think what you're saying, and I think which is the way, the best way to do it is, you, you get the most focus from colleges if you go deep into the playoff and you win. Exactly. We I, I tell the kids that all the time. I said the further you win, the more you win, the bigger thing. People, uh, uh, college coaches, pro coaches, they everybody loves winners. Uh, I say a college coach will look at a sixth or seventh guy on a team that only averaged maybe nine or ten points and they won three or four state championships, that's one less thing he has to teach that kid is how to win. That kid is going to come in with the work ethic of a winner. And so I try to make sure our guys understand that because we've had guys to, to average seven to eight points and still attain a big-time scholarship or a scholarship that most people wouldn't have thought they would have been uh, able to get. And so uh, I just think it's all about you know trying to build a team, build a brotherhood. And, and our guys, you know, we've been just been fortunate to have kids that come through there and they understand that they buy into that because it's a big buy-in. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like, you know, it's, it's nice when I remember when I was coaching and just starting out running my high school program, we go up against a team and they'd be really, really good and they beat us. And, um, and I would just walk up to them after I said, how long have you been coaching at the school? And he goes, you know, they'd say 12 years, right. Or, or 15 years or 10 years. And I was like, man, it must be a really nice situation where you've been there for, you know, multiple years and you kind of got a program, you got a system in place where people understand who you are. And perhaps you don't even, I imagine, are the parents okay with what you do? And do you have any issues with the, on that end? No, you know, I think parents are just, I mean, when, when people say they have parents, when I first started coaching, I thought, you know, parents, oh my God, they're just too much. But when you start getting older and you start maturing and you start understanding this process, what it is, whatever, the way I see it, and I tell a lot of the coaches I mentor this, I say, you know, basically they're just concerned about their child. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're getting. Uh, you know, so don't, don't, don't mix it up too much. But, again, I've had wonderful parents. Um, you know, again, they understand what it is that we are doing. Uh, I tell them at the beginning, you give me your boy, I'm going to give you back a man. And I, I try to make them understand that. And part of being a man is, you know, you got to understand your role. you got to understand your part because you're a part – 
or a piece to this puzzle that's going to make us successful. And if you, you know, you don't, if you get out of line with that, you know, we're not going to be successful. You're not going to be successful. So, you know, that's where we are. Have you ever had to cut anybody on the varsity level? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You okay. mean as far as tryouts, cuts, or just... No, I mean, let's say it's, they, you know, in the middle of the season, it, became, it, it was a problem and they weren't buying in. Uh, have you ever had, had to resort to that or have you been able to get through? Uh, I've been able to get through. I've been able to get through. And a lot of times, you know, I've had kids that had, you know, problems, I say, with quote-unquote problems. Uh, but my challenge, and I got this from, uh, you know, uh, Florida State coach, I can, he's not ringing the bell now, Bobby, uh, the football coach, uh, Bobby Bowden. I got this from Bobby Bowden. He said it's easy for me to kick them off, but it's, the challenge is to be able to discipline them and keep them. And I believe in that. I believe in trying to work them through their problems, work them through their challenges, working through their issues, because I feel like I'm going to create a better person for society that way. And so that's one of my big things. And so uh, I've been fortunate. You know, I haven't had to kick a kid off in the middle of the season. I don't lose kids to eligibility with grades. And, again, because we try to build a whole program from the ground up, it's not just part basketball. And, you know, it's everything all into one. Well, let's talk about the progression from what you're doing now, and then you're also doing it with the Team USA uh, under 16, under 17. So uh, tell us about when you uh, became involved with that and how you're coaching and what that's like to coach at that with those kind of players. Well, actually, uh, I was invited to a training camp this past fall uh, in Colorado where they had 16 and unders and they had 17s and they had uh, some of the guys are going to be playing in Hoop Summit in, the, in a couple weeks there. And I was able to work on the floor with the guys, be a floor coach. And uh, Coach Don Shaw, Showalter is the head coach. And, uh, you know, B.J. Johnson and Sean Ford brought me in because they're the directors of the event. And so uh, I had a great time doing it. Uh, really, really uh, learned a lot. The best basketball culture in the world to me is USA Basketball. They, have, they really have it figured out, the, uh, you know, from top to the bottom, from the professionals all the way down to the, you know, the young kids, the 16s and the 17s. Uh, after working at training camp, uh, I got a call from Sean Ford, and he asked me, uh, they, they asked me would I be a, come, become a part of the staff. And so uh, I couldn't wait till he got through asking me, though, because he went through a whole spiel. I was like, hurry up so I can tell you yes, because <laughs> to be able to serve my country from the sidelines, you know, and, you know, a lot of guys got to go to war and get shot and all that to serve the country, but I get to serve them from the sidelines doing something I love, and it's just an awesome feeling. Um, you know, we'll we'll go to training camp at the end of May in Colorado, and we'll you know train for two weeks and make some cuts or what have you, and then we'll go to Argentina and play in the 16 and under championships. And so, looking really forward to it, uh, getting exposed to the FIBA game and the different rules and the different things that come along with it. So, I'm just excited to be a part of it. Oh, that that, that does sound amazing. You know, and don't forget when you you know if you're running and you catch the ball. You have to spike it down to try dribbling, right? Or you can't catch it and rip through and go, right? I, I remember uh, being in Europe, uh, when I was studying and trying to do that, and I, I get called for traveling every time. It drove me nuts. I, I imagine is that something you drill, like some of, the, some of those kind of things, and how not to travel in the FIBA rules? Well, you know, actually, when I did the training camp, it was more on fundamentals. We had, you know, but when I, when I go to training camp, I'm pretty sure they're going to be hounding in on a lot of the FIBA rules and some of the things that they'll have to do uh, going forth. But, uh, Again, it's just a great situation. I like the, the drills they were doing. I took them all and brought them back and started doing them with my team. Because, I, I like, again, I'm always trying to learn, and I learned so much uh, there. And so I'm just ready to actually take it on full course. I don't want to put you on the spot, but, you know, is there a drill that you want to tell us about? Well, you know, maybe a coach would love to hear. Is, I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe one, but is there any one on top of your head that you could think of that you learned? 
Yeah, I got one from Don Showart. He did this drill, and uh, we use it every day in our practice now. Uh, it's called cutthroat. Uh, it's four four drill, and you know you got certain rules where you got to face up when you catch the ball, and you got to after you pass, you have to cut. Uh, and then if you somebody makes a shot, that you have to tell the person who passed you the ball, thank you. If you miss any of those rules or what have you, you're off the floor. Next group comes in, and it's a it's a continuous drill, and the guys really compete with it because the team that scores the most wins, and you only go for a certain amount of minutes. But it was incredible, and it's it's been a great thing for our team. Uh, it's teaching them fundamentals. Like when you pass the ball, you want the kid to naturally cut, and that's what it created for us. Like we'll, we'll, we call, we had an offense actually called cutthroat, where it wasn't really no science to it or no really schematic to it. The only thing was use your rules for cutthroat. When you catch it, face up. When you pass, cut. You know, And it created so many shots, and teams could not follow it because they thought we were doing some type of drill or, I mean, some type of play and Really, all it was was cutthroat because our guys loved it so much they gravitated to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know what it really is. It's 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 basketball, <laughs> right? That's, that's all it is. That's basketball. I mean, that's, that's the one is. thing when we're breaking down our games and I'm tweeting and stuff about it. We always talk about if you want to be able to rate how good an offense is, simply watch what the passer does after he passes it, and if he cuts. That's good, and a lot of times if he passes and backs up and holds his hands back for the ball, then we know there's a problem there. And, yes, uh, and that is my first, and people always ask me, well, how do you go through film? How should we begin to start looking at this? And, uh, and that's one of the things I always say is watch the passer after he makes that pass and see where he goes because, you know, that's one thing I feel like we've lost. Having been a historian of the game and you watch way back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and how they ran their offense, one thing they did better back then was passing. They could, they could make a wrist pass without any arm extension at 100 miles an hour right i mean it would hurt to catch it and uh, and then they would cut right right away right through um i don't yeah. see that even as well like you know when we talk about oh everybody can dribble and they can shoot a lot better that's without question but i can tell you around those those teams in the 50s pass better than we did now i think um oh. you know and and moved like you know they had that movement let me ask you about player development a little bit do you spend a lot of time in your practices on on individual skill development Oh, most definitely. That's the way we start. We will start practice with a little warm-up shooting drill, and then we'll stretch with our calisthenics in and stretch with the bands and do all of that. But as soon as we get done with that, the first thing we do are individuals. We'll send the bigs on one end, we'll send the guards on one end, and we'll send the wings to, to another goal. And we have coaches at each station, and we'll work, you know, whatever we're working on or what we're trying to build on. If it could be a part of a play. It could be post-defense for the bigs. It could be, you know, guards coming off the ball screen, having different reads, teaching them different reads. Whatever it is, that's what we do. We begin practice, and we spend like 10 minutes on that, you know, a day. And it's very, very important. I think player development is so underrated at this, you know, time and age, but it's so important and so vital for the success of your team. Um, I had a chance to go watch uh, Coach Bob Hurley in, uh, in New Jersey uh, not long ago run a practice. And I'm, I, I take it you're familiar with, with him, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had to coach again. You mean senior, right? Yeah, the senior. Yeah, yeah. I had a coach against him back in 2012. So, uh, you know, he's got a certain style, and I won't, I don't think I'm revealing anything when I when I would uh, characterize him as a as a screamer. You know, and he's really in your face, and he's he's kind of personal with it and stuff. And uh, I'm kind of curious, uh, what kind of a coach are you? Are you a screamer? No, but I am an intense guy in practice. I try to do all my whatever I need to do in practice. In the game, I'm more mellow. I'm more calm. I was taught at an early uh, age in my coaching career that you do your coaching and, you know, you do your yelling and all that stuff. You do all that in practice because you're trying to emphasize points. 
But in a game, you, you literally, your game is you're supposed to just coach basically and just kind of tell kids what they're doing wrong, what they need to do, what have you. And so I kind of follow that method throughout, you know, and I try to really, like I said, I'm intense in practice. Uh, when I say intense, my intense might not be Bob Hurley or Bob Knight, but, you know, it's intense enough for my guys to understand that I mean business and that we mean that this is something, whatever I'm emphasizing is that important and that we got to do it in order for us to be successful. But once we get to the games, pretty much my hands are, my arms are crossed and I'm just sitting there kind of watching and just kind of, you know, directing. I'll get up every once in a while, but I'm more laid back. A lot of guys say, how are you so calm, you know, while you're coaching? Well, they don't know while they practice, I've been, you know, yakking and whacking because I, you know, that's what it is that is going to make us successful. So that's what I feel like we right. have to do. I mean, I also have to imagine that, you know, the more animated you are on the sideline during a game is the more um, tense you can make your players, right? I mean, they, they could kind of get on edge and not play as well. I, I believe that, too. I believe they read whatever you are, and, and I can go, like, we were talking about situations. Uh, if the kids come over in a timeout situation and you look like you're not together, they're not going to be together when you're trying to show them what it is you're trying to run at the end of the game. So they read everything, and uh, I've learned that, you know, coaching nearly 20 years, that those kids, they can read everything. And so if they see you calm, they're going to be calm, you know, and, and you know, they read your body language and your, or your intensity, they're going to be intense. And so I try to manage that. You know, a lot of people don't think about that, but I try to manage my emotions so that they'll know exactly, you know, how they need to be or what they did. They'll follow my cue. Uh, how are you with the refs during the games? Uh, I used to be really, like, uh, into the refs and trying to work them. I call myself working them. But now it's more or less I'm just trying to make sure they are, you know, uh, I'm getting a, a fair game. And not only that, I'm going to make sure my kids understand what to do right. The only reason I talk to the refs is so I can go back and tell my kids what they need to know. That's the way I look at it now. You know, every once in a while I might have to say, Hey, you gotta respect me. I'm a six-time state champion. What I'm saying <laughs> makes sense. It's not like I'm just making up some crap. And so, because again, you know, uh, that's something you just have to call something to. The, and, and they will come back and say, Coach, I hear what you're saying. I respect what you're saying. And uh, you know, I, I, I really don't don't get many technicals. Uh, I, I think I've got maybe one or two technicals in my whole career. So, okay, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, yeah. By the way, because that's the other thing that I think players learn um, when they play for a, a coach that's always screaming at the refs. Uh, and, you know, I think we see it even at the pro level, like with the, like the Clippers, for instance, is a real interesting issue. I don't, and whenever I turn them on, it's like, the, you know, you watch those players and they're constantly yelling at the refs. And then you look at the coach and he is constantly yelling at the refs. Uh, and the TV see everything, right? So um, I think it's an important thing. And it might actually end up being a function of when I was younger, too. I was terrible. I was terrible. And I, I didn't get that many T's, but I was certainly uh, having a conversation with them a lot. And um, I finally, whatever, you know what it was? I took a break from coaching and I was watching. I went to watch some games. And you realize these are just guys who are, I don't know if they get paid in Georgia, but, you know, in, in L.A., they're getting paid like 40 bucks or 50 bucks. They're just nice guys who love the game, who are just trying to, you know, make a living or whatever, uh, doing what they love. And, I, and I, I felt so bad I ever would have yelled at any of these guys for any of the calls <laughs> they made. And it really helped. Yeah, I, I tell I tell the refs all the time. I say my job is not to coach you guys. My guy, my job is to coach the team, and I really believe that. You know, I tell them they should be the best team on the floor because they should all be working together. I try to encourage them more than anything about what their job and responsibility is, what the way I see it. And you know, uh, again, you know, you, you're gonna have some good ones, you're gonna have some bad ones, and then you're gonna have some terrible ones. And so, you know, you just have to kind of like go with it. So you've been there for a while. You've you've had tremendous success.
What do you think your future lies in store for you? Uh, you know what? I'm just kind of taking it as it is. I would love to, you know, get to another level of this, meaning I, I, I see myself wanting to coach college as well as maybe even do some things in the pros. Uh, but I'm just taking it one day at a time and just seeing where it leads to. Uh, just going to continue to try to work and get better at it till my time comes. And if I, if I get that call, you know, I'm going to be, you know, more than ready to go. And, uh, again, just trying to get all the valuable experience I can. Uh, and it, like I say, it's, it's really fun. It's fun for my family. It's fun for, you know, the, the kids I coach. Uh, and so, again, I don't look at it like I have a job. I look at it like it's more like a ministry to me. I, 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 go, to, I, go, to, I go to life. I don't go to work. This is what I wanted to do. This is what I've been wanting to do. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just a great situation. I'm just passionate because this is my passion. Do you, uh, do you have kids? Or do they play? Uh, no, I have younger kids. I have really younger kids. I got a five-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. So they, they enjoy coming. My little daughter cheers at the games, and my son loves to come. He, he'll, I think he'll finally be ready to sit on the bench uh, this upcoming season. He's not ready yet. He's not ready to sit still and just kind of watch the game. Now. So I think this year he'll be ready. And so he'll sit on the bench. But, you know, getting them involved and just making it a family affair. My wife comes in. You know, just making it a family affair. Making them involved as much as possible. Well, that sounds fantastic. Well, Coach, thanks for joining us and giving us some interesting and valuable insight into your coaching process. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? You in, coach? I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participating stores.